or seven weeks, I tell you. We are just talking about it before, yeah. If, you, if you've got a seat at the table, you're twice as busy than ever, and if you don't, you haven't been up to too much. And clearly, you have a seat at many tables. How little sleep have you been getting during this shit? <laughs> Jeez. So my routine, I get up about six. I'm staying in a friend's apartment in Wellington. I uh, I get up at six, so I, get, I wander into the uh, command centre, kind of, they feed us at our desks like kind of caged animals, you know, and I'm... Uh, Just a little up and I, go. There you go, mate. <laughs> exactly. And then I um, I, talk, I get back to the apartment about eight or nine at night, and then I kind of catch up on emails and stuff, get to bed about midnight, I guess, and just hit repeat. I get it. Being like that, I did 35, 35 days straight, and then I got, a, um, I, I got a little kind of day and a half to whip up home and see the family and then back down here again. So. Yeah, man. Wifey's holding it down up, up north and you're in the mix. So it's actually, it's called the command centre. Like how many people are there? What's the physical infrastructure like? Like who's around and what's uh, So we are, uh, there's a group of 120, 150 people, I guess. It kind of fluctuates uh, where I am. There's there's three different command, effective command centres down here in uh, Wellington. Uh, I'm sitting alongside uh, police a uh, bunch of people uh, focused on repatriation of Kiwis, a bunch of people focused on sorting out the resources needed to support our uh, health uh, workers, PPE, all that kind of stuff, people working on um, organising food to communities in need and dealing with kind of the uh, communities that have larger social challenges, uh, that kind of thing. So just a myriad of activity going around. Uh, mm. People, a small number of people from the private sector, predominantly people that have uh, been pulled in from government departments around the place. Yeah, it's a pretty radical time for the nation and obviously everyone's kind of full gun. You've been in a bunch of leadership spots before and, you know, the Pike River stuff, the Air New Zealand, the Iceberg, you know, you've done, you've done big shit. Where does... Where does this stack up mentally for you for the amount of bandwidth that you've actually been pushed to? Is this the toughest kind of leadership sort of role slash challenge you've actually ever, ever faced because of the complexity? I mean, where does this sort of rank in your headspace um, of the stuff you've done? Well, it's it's hard for a range of reasons. I, I've, I've avoided government for my whole career. I've <laughs> tried to stay as far away as I can, and I kind of feel like I've finally been sucked into the vortex, right? Um what makes this a particularly hard? I've had all sorts of really tough challenges, but this would be the one where you're dealing with the least clarity, right? Every day we open the newspapers, we learn something new. So, you know, you get a lot of uh, either support or criticism of the government and the decisions they've made, but you have to realise that they were making decisions six weeks ago with very little hardcore knowledge and data as to what was really going on. So you've got to, you've got to make judgments. You've got to make guesses. Governments aren't good at, at guessing or making judgments. Governments are used to sitting down and spending months and months and months analysing data, considering policy choices, making sure they understand all the consequences and unintended consequences of their actions. This doesn't work like that, right? You actually need a whole bunch of people to come together across traditional silos in government and make some really, really big calls with a fraction of the data they used to make them and make them fast. And government doesn't move fast. So one of the roles I've been able to play being down here is to bring some 
agility and speed because business does move fast, right? Business has to be agile to survive. And so trying to figure out, and I've, you know, I've bumped up against a lot of, uh, I guess, bureaucracy, uh, which is there for a reason, yep. um, but I'm kind of like the, I'm the one that everyone has the love-hate relationship with, right? Because I get stuff done, uh, but I ruffle a few feathers in the process. It's it's like uh, Rob Campbell on, on LinkedIn. He says all the shit that other people are too afraid to say, and no one can give him shit for it because it's Rob Campbell. <laughs> so he just gets away with it. It's like, it's such the ninja move. But on that, you put, you touch on two points, one on speed and one on one on data. The how do, Does the government get earlier data sets globally than before it gets made public or how does the actual flow of data get collated to be able to make a decision is there is there a different level of obviously comms and interaction with other different governments just just for those that aren't aware of how it i guess would work to how it is working just just talk through that because I'm, I'm quite intrigued to know there's always what the public know to what is it happening to what they know to potentially what other stuff what who knows stuff and who doesn't how's that all work yeah, I mean, there are networks that the government can uh, hook into. You know, the prime minister is talking to other prime ministers. There's a network, a global network of chief science advisors. So the prime minister has a chief science advisor. The Ministry of Health has a chief science advisor. They're all hooked into their counterparts around the globe. Uh, the challenge is kind of sifting through the fact and the fiction and the opinion and the kind of the crackpot idea versus the idea that's actually got some substance and, and genuine on-the-ground experience. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's tough. So, yes, they're assessing um, all sorts of information. Like, we have a team working in here of kind of 20 or 30 people working on, on just intelligence data gathering, right, from both locally as well as, uh, as, well as internationally. But stuff, I, I came off, I was on a call before this one, and I had an hour, I teed up uh, through the Kia network, actually, yeah. um, all, all, the, uh, all, the, all the medical professionals that are working in other parts of the world on the front line of this, right? So in New York, in London, in Europe, and so on. And we got a group of them together to talk to the chief science advisors here in New Zealand and say, what are we seeing on the ground? What's working? What's not? What did we find in the first couple of weeks when it was kind of going super crazy versus what do we know now, given that those countries are, they've gone through a really challenging time. And if we get a second or third wave and, and we have those challenges, you know, can we be a bit ahead of the game based on, on what we learn from those guys? So some of it's ad hoc, um, some of it's organized, but, you know, to, to some extent, we're all learning at the same rate, you know, so you open up the paper and read stuff. You know, our, our politicians, our medical professionals are opening the paper and reading those same things. Yeah, it's you're clearly balancing a pretty fine line of you know the the navigation of comms between public and private sector, right? And there's not many people that can yeah. that can have that crossover brain to understand both sides. We, before your flight down to Wellies, um, you know, you were saying I think what you know six seven weeks ago. What was your biggest fear going into it? Oh, I, you know, I was pretty vocal before I arrived down here. It's one of the reasons I ended up down here, to be honest. I, I was pretty vocal that the government needed to be moving faster um, and actually more aggressive. You know, it was clearly evident what was happening in other countries. It was clearly evident that the virus was going to come in across the border. 
so I was very clear the government need to be locked down, locked down fast, lock the border down hard, get things under control, and then figure out how we're going to manage our economy. Um, I still would have liked to have you know, gone faster than we did, but the government had a whole bunch of, of, of trade-offs that they had to be considering at the time. So my fear when I got down here is that I would just push up against a bureaucracy and I wouldn't be able to get the momentum that was needed and things I felt was really important, like getting the best quality kit we could for our health workers to keep them safe in the event that things started to really kick off, right? It was those kind of issues. Uh, and when I got down here, you know, to be honest, first week, I was kind of floundering around like a fish out of water. I didn't really know how to make things happen down here. But, you know, by the um, by halfway through the second week, you know, I was, I was sending a, a text to the Minister of Finance to say, you know, we need $70 million to buy some... Uh, some uh, PPE, and I and we don't have time to go through the normal approval processes. You know, we got that signed off within within twelve hours. So, you you so you know, seventy mil. Yeah, yeah, he was <laughs> he was in the cabinet meeting at the time. He said, "I'll give it to you." But anyway, we got it done, right? We got it done, and that that's what actually needed to happen. Because if we didn't do that, if we went through the normal process, would have taken two weeks, and we would have been right at the back of the queue when everyone else was scrambling to get this stuff. So that's where. You know, a, a, a someone that's used to working in the system wouldn't think of doing that because it's it's, it's deemed to be inappropriate, right? Whereas I kind of don't play have to play by the rules because I'm not part of that organisation. I'm actually just an unpaid volunteer, right? So you can kind of live outside the system a little bit. So. Well, it's so good too because you're on the outside just getting vocal and then the next move is like, all right, mate, well, uh, how about you come down and uh, give it a go? Cheers. All right. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. For better or worse. So I had a, a little bit of trepidation, but anyway, I've been, I, I think I've been able to make a little bit of a difference. So. Well, how does yeah. that work with you flipping 35 days straight? I hope Jacinda's giving you some overtime cookies or some shit. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, you know, it's kind of like you're opened up by saying you're either twice as busy or kind of, you know, doing nothing at all. Um in some ways, I feel like I'm lucky one, right? So, you know, if I was at home twiddling my thumbs, I'd, I'd actually be going mental. I'm not I'm not good in that state. I need to be really active. So I haven't had to, like, drag myself out of bed and think, God, I've got to go to work today. You, like, bounce out of bed. And actually, the challenge is more to close the laptop and think, because I've got to get to bed. I need to get five or six hours of sleep or I'll be trashed tomorrow, right? So it's that. It's just that adrenaline just keeps driving you. Are you still getting your workouts and shit in? Like, what are you doing for your fitness stuff? Are you are you going for like a little midday walk? Are you just yeah. you get you put on the you're just gonna put on the pies, mate. You're gonna get home. Sorry, I know. Rob, I know, there's I know. a treadmill. Get your ass down into the flipping gym. Exactly. <laughs> I'm normally I'm normally just super disciplined. You know, I love my exercise, but so it's gone a bit by by the by the by. So. I walk to work every day, you know, it's 25 minutes to and from the apartment I'm staying in. That's pretty good. I do it kind of, I've got a little, because I travel, well, I used to travel a lot. Um, I've got quite a good kind of hotel workout thing, just kind of abs yeah. and, you know, core strength and that kind of stuff. But I've, I, I maybe get a run in twice a week, but nothing, you know, normally normally I'd be an hour, hour or two at the gym yeah. every day, right? So I'm yeah. kind of like, I feel like I've become a complete veg, right? Oh, just wally life, mate. You're still settling in. Um, I tell you, though, I tell you, on that note, I've been here, like, this is, I must be day 40 now, and there's only one day that I haven't been able to walk to to and from the apartment because it was raining. One day of rain and 40 days in Wellington. What's that all about? Jeez. 
times are changing, man. This is not only has it changed the financial and medical economy, it's changed changing the weather, man. Who knows? Um, exactly. I was going to ask you about the um, the strategy to approach this, right? Did you have a did you have an open were you an open book walking into it, or did you have some preconceived notions of what you thought the strategy could be of how you'd approach it with what you thought the the issue was? Was there a disconnect or misalignment between the the perception versus the reality before you walked in? I think I had a view when I came in of what we needed to be doing, and it was actually aligned with the government. Maybe I kind of got there a little earlier, but um, but uh, uh, we 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 were very aligned when I hit the ground here. But the challenge with this with this pandemic and this crisis is we're learning stuff every day, and the biggest risk is that you get locked into a point of view. And there's new data hits you that actually invalidates something you believe, but you're so locked in your to your point of view that you can't adapt, right? So that's why I kind of get frustrated with people saying, oh, well, you know, we know this now, so, you know, we should be doing X or we should be doing Y. You just got to keep adapting. So it's not about whether you're right or wrong. You make a judgment based on the data that's available to you at the time. You get new new data. You, you change your judgment, right? You change your, uh, your course. And... Yeah, I've we've seen some we've seen some great successes and we've seen some failures. Like, yeah, Hokkaido in in Japan went early into lockdown. They locked down for three or four weeks. They thought we got this under control, so they kind of lifted their uh, lockdown. Um, that that was back in kind of late March. Um, by by mid April, they were back into lockdown again because it all kicked off again, right? And we see Germany retightening things up, so. So you just got to keep adjusting. And if, if you don't keep your, your kind of foot on the throat of this thing, it just gets away on you again. The, um, you were saying, you know, potentially you would have liked to have seen it go earlier. Were you happy that they, was it the right call to extend it out to after um, Anzac for another seven days? Did that sit well? Yeah, it sat well with me. And I know, mm. you know, I'm really conscious. Like I've, I'm involved in a whole bunch of small businesses myself, half a dozen. Uh, and they're really hurting. It's been it's been tough, but um, you, you know, at the same time, we put in all that hard work for for four weeks to try and get this thing under control. My view is we might as well spend another week and really and really nail it if it was going to make a difference. And all the the epidemiologists and the modelers I was talking to um, said that that would make a real difference. So you know, I think. I think that was the right decision. I think what's important now, though, we were kind of we needed to go fast into lockdown. We actually need to go hard at getting the economy restarted as well, because you know that plays to mental health. That plays to people's just need for you know being sitting around on the chuff for five or six weeks. Actually, want to get back out and do something, and mm. and so we need to be doing everything we can, but we need to be super watchful for the first signs that we're losing control of this thing again. We need to be able to stamp it out, but we need to be able to stamp it out without going back into lockdown. So, my my plea at the moment, and you know what I'm trying to impress upon everyone I talk to, is people just need clarity, right? Give them a roadmap so they can see where we're going. They know what they follow. Give them the the conditionality. Um, uh, give them the conditionality around that of saying if this happens, then we're potentially going to have to tighten some things up. People just want that clarity, right? And then they can make a plan. They can figure out, can I afford to hold on to my, all my team or can I not afford, you know, do I have enough cash, all those kind of things. I don't yeah. think we're giving people enough clarity at the moment. Even if the, um, 
yeah that i i totally agree because the, the, the danger is when you sit there and you don't know it's like inception and a, a, a seed of doubt plants in your head and then it cycles and spirals and knows and without that, yeah. that definitive thing i'd rather know the bad thing is going to be here but at least i know it's there opposed to not yeah. know and then you just especially with the, the headspace stuff because it can take into some um, some bad spots i was gonna i was gonna ask rob you you know you talked earlier about trade-off right of, around when they sort of pull the trigger and, and i'm imagining you know, Holly Bennett was talking about it yesterday. She was saying, you know, um, lives versus livelihood, health versus wealth, you know, um, COVID versus the, the the currency side of, of all this and the commercial realities. How have you, what's your biggest fear for New Zealand's economy after this? Um, you know, because, well, I'll say, you know, my starting position is, uh, I don't buy into the lives versus livelihood argument. I actually think it's got to be lives and livelihood, and I think these things can be um, can be in balance. And you know, everything I've seen, you just take what's happened so far, and you say compare us to the UK or compare us to USA. Um, you know, USA is kind of heading for twenty percent unemployment at the moment. Do I think we'll be that bad? No, I don't. Um, UK. From, from the first infection in the UK, the first person that died to the hospital system being overwhelmed was 10 days, right? So they were too slow into lockdown, and now they'll spend twice as long in lockdown as we do. You know, they'll be in lockdown for two months. Yeah. Um, so my view is by going hard and going early, we'll come out of lockdown early, we actually get a better economic outcome, and, and we get a, a, a better health outcome, right? So... So I think I think our mindset has to be, we want health and we want livelihoods. These are not trade-offs. I, I think the narrative, because the daily communications have all been about how many cases today, how many deaths. You know, we've all got fixated on these numbers, and you know they they kind of you know they they become quite quite you know almost like a drug. They're addictive, right? We want what are today's numbers? Um, we need to broaden them. Exactly, and that, it's partly that narrative that's forced us into, well, is it health or your lives or is it livelihoods? Um, we need to broaden our narrative out and, and demonstrate to people we're actually trying to balance and, and save lives and get our livelihoods back together. And people, I think, now are ready to hear a balanced narrative that, that gives a sense that we're, we're tying all those pieces together, right? Because it's about mental health. It's about people's need for social interaction. It's about people being able to, get back to work and support their families. It's about making sure that our hospital system isn't getting overwhelmed and we can give people first world care. It's about making sure that the, um, our health workers are protected with the gold standard um, uh, PPE, not just the bare minimum. You know, I was talking to doctors in, uh, in New York that are telling us, you know, for the first month of dealing with this crisis, they were getting one mask a week that they had for for the entire week that they're expected to wash at home and all this kind of stuff. You know, we we we're geared up so that we can we, we've got enough capacity now that we can use a million masks a day, right? You know, we those things we've bought ourselves time to actually protect the lives and 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 uh, and the safety of our of our health workers, right? How important is that? You know, so. So we've made some really, really 
good decisions, but we need to give people clarity now. We, as I say, we need to have a more balanced conversation about the health and well-being of all elements of our society, our economy, uh, and our people. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I haven't thought, obviously I know it's a balance and a tension between the two, but yeah, I think you're right. Like if you change the narrative, why, why it is actually a balance of both, so it potentially should be treated as such. The idea of, you know, business restarting, you know, for a lot of the, you know, you've, you're part of a bunch of small businesses and obviously you've got your finger on the pulse of the commercial side of New Zealand. How do you see this play out when an economy starts back from zero because i don't think it's ever happened like this before at a, at a national even international global level how do you see it playing out from this point when it, it is at zero yeah um you know so, some things start up quickly right you know if, if if you uh if you're a cafe and you know come come this week on tuesday you're able to take away coffees and so on well you know you're back underway so it doesn't go kind of zero, five percent, ten percent, fifteen percent. Some businesses, when they when they reopen, will be able to move at pace. You know, one of the businesses I'm involved in is a um, a company that does store fitouts, right? And uh, you know, they, they're back at work on Tuesday, and and they're pumping. You know, the next couple of m- months are busy. They're catching up on a whole bunch of work that was stalled in the last month or two that everyone wants to get mobilised again. So. So some things will um, some things will kick off really really quickly. Um, some things are going to be like a really long term kind of slow burn. You know, tourism we're guessing is one of those things. So to my mind, it's important that they, from a government point of view, they're looking and saying, what can we do to stimulate and support some of those businesses, particularly the ones that are going to be a slow burn. You know, we've heard talk over the last week or so about the value of if we could you know australia's in a pretty similar position to us um if we could uh if we could open the australia new zealand border have a massive kind of uptick uh for us economically uh for our tourism businesses keep up you know we get three times as many tourists from australia as we do from any other uh, country in the world uh, really critical for a trading relationship so um, so, so those things would be uh, would would be fantastic. Yeah, I was going to ask about the the ANZAC, um, but we were talking to with uh, Robert Oliver um, the other day, and you know he was talking about the islands of you know the the dangers. You know they want to be able to open up the safety to them, but they can control. Um, they can't control who's coming into them, but we can control who comes to us. And so it becomes that risk that the, the wider it gets. Do you think there should be like an ANZAC bubble between between who or how would that that work? And I imagine it's going to be. There's obviously processes and, and testing. I mean, how, how, how do you see, even see the, the possibility of that becoming a potential reality or even if it's feasible? Well, I, I think it's feasible, right? For that to become a reality, we have to have very, very equivalent um, health situations in terms of what, what's going on in our communities by way of infection. And we have to have uh, very similar border controls around the Australasian bubble so that we're confident that neither country is allowing uh, the virus to come in across its um, external borders. But if you know, you, you look at the moment, Australia's getting, you know, six cases a, a, a day at the moment, average, you know, one per state, we're getting a, uh, a couple. So the risk that the virus is going to come across our border from Australia has got very, very small. Um, most of the virus that came across our border, uh, you know, in the lead up to this event was coming from highly infectious countries like 
Italy, like Iran, like USA, like the UK and so on. So if we can get confident that we've got similar policy settings, um, then I think it's highly uh, feasible that we could have free travel across uh, the Australian-New Zealand border. But to make that work, you then have to say, so what are the requirements you put in place? Maybe someone before they come across the border has got to kind of self-isolate at home for you know, three or four days before they jump on a plane. Maybe they need to be tested before they leave. Maybe they need to be tested every couple of days when they arrive. Um, you know, uh, what's what's the arrangements on board the plane? You know, how, how much seat density can you have on the plane? Do people have to wear masks? You know, there's a whole series of protocols you'd have to go through. Super critical, I think, that we have a good contact tracing uh, solution in place so that when you arrive as a visitor, you get given whatever the device is so that we can keep tabs on you as you're moving around the country, all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, so yeah. it takes a decent work effort, um, but you know, my money would be on getting that task force going now between Australia and New Zealand and see if we can figure it out because it's got to be, of all the borders we could open, that's got to be the easiest one. And that obviously plugs directly in because obviously they've got direct flights into Queenstown, Queenstown with tourism, one of the biggest hardest hit. Um, yep. How do you see the, the this tourism uh, landscape playing out because, you know, shot over shot, it's essentially at, at zero, even if the New Zealanders back the locals, it's not, not going to be anywhere the, the same route. Do you see it as the same approach of, you know, local, regional, national, and then obviously the international out again? Like how, how do you see tourism play out after this? Yeah, you know, if you tourism, over half our tourism is domestic. You know, if we can get mobility within New Zealand again, uh, then we will see domestic tourism pick up. I mean, I, I, I travel a lot overseas, right? Yeah, you know, in this scenario, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be vacationing in, in New Zealand, so um, so I'll be additive to what's going on in New Zealand. If we get Australia open, you know, that's another big chunk, as I say, three times as many tourists from Australia as any other country uh, in the world. Um, so if we could get domestic tourism going, if we could get Australian tourism going, and potentially, if Australians can't go to many other places, then we could get more Australian tourists coming here than traditionally would have Potentially, right? So, so you know, I can, I can, I, I've got a vision that says, you know, within twelve months we could have a really vibrant Australasian bubble. Then, you know, maybe it's like it's still tough, right? But maybe it's not quite as tough as what people are thinking at the moment. Yeah, the, um, I'm an optimist. Got to yeah, be an optimist, dude. I, same page. I get it. It's good. The um. You know, you're talking about the contact tracing before and they're talking about devices and bits and pieces. I don't know if that has been talked about or not because I, I try to not to follow too much of any sort of clickbaity news. But are they, like, are they, is there any talk around using like prison ankle bracelets for, for humans? Um, not, not ankle bracelets. It's there probably going a little, <laughs> little further than the social Brandon. license that the government has at the moment. Um, but we are playing around with the idea of like giving everyone every New Zealander a card like about the size of a credit card that you know you hang around your neck on a lanyard or you put in a wallet or whatever that has a little Bluetooth transmitter receiver on it and all that device would do is if I was near you uh, for longer than a certain period of time might be three four five minutes so we're not just walking past each other in the street my card would record your card number on it 
and just say, I've been in proximity of you. Doesn't No personal details about you. All it's doing is exchanging card numbers. Mm-hmm. And in the event I tested positive, they could download an encrypted file off my phone, go to the central database, which is you know protected by data security, et cetera, et cetera, and say, right, these uh, 20 cards have been in the proximity of that card. Uh, we're going to get the names and phone numbers of those people which were recorded when we gave them the card. We're going to ring them all up and say, or send them a text actually, and say, you should go and self-isolate now because you've been in close proximity of someone that's tested positive, and then we'll call you in 12 hours and tell you what to do next. If we could do that, we could potentially take three days out of the time it's currently taking to trace contacts, that's three days less that someone's out in the community being infectious. Because what we know is that people are potentially infectious for three days before they actually develop symptoms on average. And that's when the the virus is at most risk of 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 propagating around the uh, around the community. So so yeah, I mean, so we're, we're looking and seeing whether those technologies are feasible. We're looking at all these apps and so on. But if if that's the price we have to pay to be able to move freely around our society and, and, and our communities and get back to work and so on, doesn't feel like a very big price uh, to me. And that's no. true of most people I've talked to. And, and would that be um, mandatory to have the card on you when you, you're out and about? And would that exist for if you're flying into New Zealand, if you're a New Zealander? Is that how they do it instead of putting them up in hotels and stuff? Well, I suspect if you're coming from a high-risk country, you're still going to have to go into a hotel for for a while because, you know, the problem is if you if you go home, even if you've got the card, if you start spreading it around. So if you come from somewhere high-risk, I think you're still going to have to quarantine. But if you're coming from a low-risk environment, then I think the, the, the card is, is the answer, right? That's the way to – and these cards don't track where you are. It doesn't say, you know, Robert was – kind of in, in this bar at two o'clock in the morning, all it oh, says oh, oh, is... Not there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be you, right? Um, all it says is you were beside this person at that time on that day. That's, uh, but I don't think I don't think it's going to be legislated like a driver's licence that says you've got to have your driver's licence when you're in the car. But I think what would happen, like if I'm an employer, I don't want anyone coming into my building that doesn't have a card because in the event someone tests positive, I don't want to have to send everyone at home, right? I only want to send the people home to self-isolate that happen to be in contact with that person. So it's kind of a health and safety thing, right? It's the way we keep our, our grandparents healthy and out of hospital, you know? It's the way we look after the future of our country for our kids. It's, it's a, To me, it's a no-brainer. I was going to ask the tech on the backside of that. Are they looking at... Um, like blockchain technology to be able to use as a, as a ledger for all the, all the data? Or is this going to be, you know, new tech on existing sort of cloud-based platforms out of, like, have they, is that the type of chat that people are sort of talking about for this? Or is it quite traditional? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, we're trying, like, I've been bombarded with ideas of kind of, you know, everyone who's got the best tracing app in the world that can solve this problem. Um, where possible, we do. Don't say crypto. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Where possible, we want to use proven technology, right? Because you know, if you try and rush some new technology to market to solve this problem and the timeframes we're talking about, you're bound to get it wrong. So so there is already like Bluetooth transmitter receiver technology. It's in your phone. It's on the little tile things that you can attach to your keys. You know, in the event you lose your keys. Um, 
you need to use kind of rotating encrypted keys because you don't want people being able to follow you around town. So, so Apple and so on do this now with their Bluetooth transmitters to, to, for privacy reasons. Um, you want to make sure the data is protected. I mean, one of the reasons Apple and Google are very cautious about how their phones work in this space, you know, is they don't want, you know, if you're in, I don't know, if, you, if you're in Myanmar, you know, and you're, uh, you get pulled up by the police because you're the local communist or whatever, um, you don't want the, Google and Apple don't want the police getting into your phone, figuring out all, who all your close contact communist mates are so they can all be hung up from their feet and beaten with a stick, you know. So so there's a whole lot of protections in around uh, much of this technology to ensure it can't be used badly by by bad actors, bad governments. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're having to think through all those things, right? How do you get the security? How do you protect the privacy of individuals? How do you have the right uh, rules in place and if needs be legislation to make sure the the data can't be used by other government departments for other purposes, all that kind of stuff. Mm. It's a real challenge. But, but if we can solve that challenge, it gets us back to work. It gets us able to go into our cafes and into our restaurants and live as best as possible a normal life whilst we've got COVID-19 in, in our midst. And also as well, if, if for the chances that tech comes from is instantly a pretty globally wanted asset, which I'm sure would be very um, good for a whole bunch of people, right? So there's there's obviously commercial opportunities to it as well. Um, obviously, I know we tapped and don't want to take too much of your time, but what are you, two last things, what are you most scared for in the next 12 months in New Zealand? I think, you know, if I'm scared of something, I guess, you know, I'm scared of the unknown, like everyone else is scared of the unknown, you know, and probably the biggest unknown confronting us at the moment you know, as we, the first wave of this came at us in summer or, or autumn. Um, if you look at the high death rates and if you look at where the virus has really kicked off in different countries of the world, it seems to have been a lot worse in, in winter or cold climates. So I am nervous as we go into uh, June, July, August, and get into kind of cold, wet New Zealand, that we, we could see that this is much, much harder to keep under control. That 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 makes me um, makes me nervous, um, and you know if, if 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 I have two other fears, um, my fear is that you know pandemics like this inevitably um, hit, um, you know the 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 most I, I guess under resourced parts of our uh, communities. You know those communities that go into these situations with. Um, poor access to health services, um, uh, poor financial well-being, um, you know, crowded home environments and so on, they're the ones that typically uh, uh, fare worst. Uh, and we just have to make sure we're putting the support into those communities that are at risk. And they're often the ones that are hardest to reach. They're the ones that yeah. don't have the best penetration of mobile phones and you know, English might be a second language and, and, and so on. So... We've, we've, we've kind of got, got to double down and making sure we're doing everything we need to do because this virus doesn't care whether you're rich or poor or whatever, but it does care about social movement and how close together people are. You know, that's mm. that's that's a factor that drives. So they're probably the the things that that I get I get most concerned about. And then and then finally, it's just about 
mental health and we can't underestimate that right you know people are losing their jobs people lose they are losing their livelihoods you know just you know i think of in new zealand which is obviously very dear to my heart and i see people being laid off that have been with the airline for a long period of time it's been their whole life you know they, they live and breathe that airline um you know this is devastating for people so you know as a community we just need to you know we just need to support all, all those people we know that have been touched negatively by this we need to need to share the love right it's going to be tough and it's and it's yeah. going to be tough for, for not just a month or two it's going to be tough for a year or two right totally i've been thinking about the, the waves of the first of the, the medical side the second of the commercial and the economy side and the third of the the long tail of mental health of the relationships that get broken the the psyche that gets changed in, in a nation um, and I've been thinking about a lot about PCAC, you know, P- PC pre-COVID, AC after COVID. And when you look at New Zealand with what could be AC, it's a moment in time that can create a new movement to this kind of, I've been thinking about this idea of this, this new New Zealand. We have an opportunity right now and it's a moment. What do you see is the, the biggest opportunity for New Zealand as a nation to the world after COVID in your eyes, AC? Just context on that, because I actually think it's the, the scary thing is I think it's three phases, right? I think it's pre-COVID, after COVID, but there's a big long in the middle with COVID phase. Um, uh, yep. And you <laughs> yeah. know, we we could we we could be living with this thing for who knows when a vaccine will come along. You know, it might never come along, right? So this could be twelve months, two years, three years, four years that we're actually living with this virus constantly coming coming at us so so I, I think for us as a nation we're actually seen on the world stage as having responded pretty well uh, to this virus to date you know we came into this with a reputation as being a, a, a kind of a pretty cool funky country to be honest that does a lot on the world stage we've got a great reputation you know clean and green and beautiful place etc cetera, etc cetera. we handle this well we can enhance our reputation as as people that are smart, savvy, responsive, agile. Uh, we come from a place that's not only clean and green and 100% pure, but it's potentially COVID-free or something akin or close to COVID-free in a COVID world. Um, I think that's got enormous value, right? It's got enormous value to the agricultural and horticultural products we produce. It's got enormous value to our sense of, as I say, just being a kind of savvy nation and savvy people. And I think that stands us in really good stead. And I think that's what will attract investment coming into the country. It's what will attract people to think those guys are doing something right. It will add value to the products and services that that we export to the world. And, you know, we rely on being an exporting nation. That's that's, that's where our future lies, right? So we have to we have to kind of stand head and shoulders above other countries around us and then, then we get real value from that. Got it. Dude, appreciate it, brother. I know you've you're um got it back to another stint of thirty five days unpaid labour with all that IP yeah, yeah. swish around. <laughs> exactly. Um yeah. Yeah, just, but I, um you know, here's one more a little saucy prayer in the same one. Someone was telling me in the little circle, twenty percent chance of a vaccine by the end of this year or ninety percent chance by the uh, third quarter of next year. <laughs> And so even if you think that, I think you're right, the phase of um, with COVID is actually that middle section which we need to na- navigate into a tippy-toe around as well. So, no, awesome, man. Well, look, really appreciate your time, bro. I know you tap. Sub to wife and cool. the crew and go for a run, eh? Cool, I'll do it. All right. <laughs> Love Thanks, your work, brother. Man. 
see you already. Okay, bye-bye. What a good bastard. The bro, Rob, uh, Mr. Fife, working for free down at um, the Command Central Missing Control HQ in Wellington. Six, seven weeks and counting, 35 days unpaid, just doing it to try and be a good bastard to help New Zealand. Jeez, Sarah will be pissed. Uh, good insights there, actually, as well, like the understanding of how the big um, the big machines work, understanding of how to actually get stuff happen at speed, the balancing off. You know, it was really interesting, you know, pre, pre-COVID, after COVID, there's actually one with COVID, so there's a WC in the middle there, right? It's pre-COVID before, how the world was, how it is right now, and it's how it's going to be. Um, you know, if we are talking about that for at least the, the next year or so to have that within us, um, will be great to get the Anzac bubble going. Um, the card idea is pretty interesting. You know, how they um, potentially work that on some type of blockchain ledger or whatever would be super interesting. Whether they would then obviously regulate it out in public like a driver's license, you'd probably want to, you'd probably want to do it just in case for your own self, uh, safety and those of others. Uh, lots of good insights there. Um, and clearly, as you could see, you know, sitting with 150 weapons all on the same floor and um, Wellington doing damage trying to figure this thing out. So um, big ups to the bro for getting in the mix and um, uh, pretty, pretty smart. All right, team. Have a good one. See you soon. Peace.